We're going to be reading scripture together. So take out your copy of God's word. We'll, we'll read together. I'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church, to the people of the church in Ephesus. Speaking to the people of the church in Oak Park this morning as well. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 16. This is Paul speaking. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and, gave, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ, till we all attain to the unity of faith, of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way, in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. There we go. All right. How's everybody doing? Doing all right? Super. Doing super, Chris. Fantastic. Uh, as Pastor Greg mentioned at the beginning of the service, this is our second week in our mini series called Essential Church, four week series. And as I noted uh, last week, it's kind of the apologetic for why we're doing uh, this series is that throughout the pandemic over the last two years, church attendance has taken quite a hit. Uh, pollsters and those who try to figure these things out, they've uh, estimated that about a third of regular church attenders in North America, in any case, quit going to church during the pandemic. And beyond just dropping out, 
a good number of folks. Uh, no one seems to know exactly how many because it's hard to figure some of these things out. But a, a good number of folks have disengaged from physical church attendance and have moved uh, into the habit of just live streaming church. So for our part here at Calvary, uh, we probably are on par with some of those statistics. Our average weekly attendance post-COVID is down about 20% from pre-COVID. And that number is offset by the fact that about we've had a 20% uh, increase of new people over the past year. So however you stack those numbers up, it's hard to know exactly, but, but we're a, probably a, maybe a little better than the average, but not too far off uh, from the average. And then beyond that, uh, we've had a significant number of people, it's hard again to know exactly how many, are just relying upon uh, the live stream that we put out each Sundays. But as is uh, the case, uh, the New Testament vision for the church and what God wants for us uh, involves actually going to church and not just doing church through the live stream. But this past couple years has raised a question for us. This is the question that we're trying to answer through the series, is just how important is it really that we actually show up in church physically on Sunday mornings. Is that really essential? So throughout the course of the past, um, last week, this week, and then in this series, we're looking at three key ingredients that Christ has given to us or organized the church around that help us answer this question. We're looking at three key essential aspects of Christian discipleship. Worship, which orients us towards God, fellowship, which orients us towards each other, and mission, which orients us towards the world. And then, in our last week of this series, looking at this key aspect of discipleship that fuels the whole discipleship enterprise, the love of Jesus. And each of these three key ingredients, as well as experiencing the love of Jesus, actually necessitates that we be present in church. So each week we're taking a look at one of these three key ingredients, and I'm doing my best to, to make an argument from Scripture about why in-person church attendance is still a thing that we should be doing. So last week we looked at worship. This week we look at fellowship. The text that Chris read for us this morning is Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Let me encourage you to keep your Bibles open. I'm going to be referencing uh, that passage throughout the sermon and so I want you to have that in front of you there. And I want to draw out four points of application that will come primarily from verses 15 and 16. But rather than jumping just straight to verses 15 and 16 for the application, I want to walk through the preceding verses, and I want to draw out two key points of context that Paul lays out in those verses that are going to help us understand and undergird the points of application then that I want to draw from verses 15 and 16. So let me give you these first two points of context. I'll say them, and then we're going to work through uh, the text together. But the first point of context is that the goal of the gospel is unity. The goal of the gospel is unity. And the second point of context is that the graces of the gospel are diverse. 
So the goal of the gospel is unity. So in verses 4, 1 through 6, this is where we see the unity, particularly, of the gospel. Verses 1 through 3, Paul calls for the church to walk together in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, he writes. Human beings are called by the gospel to a certain way of living. And so when, when Jesus calls us to himself, he's calling us out of the world into a particular way of life. And then Paul lays out the characteristics of this kind of life that Jesus calls us to. He calls us to humility, calls us to gentleness, patience, love, unity, and peace. And all of that unity and harmony to which Jesus calls us comes from the fact that as Christians, we are united by the same one spirit. So look at verses 4 and 5. Paul writes, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Last week I said that the church sings one song together with one tune. And that's basically the same idea that Paul is saying here. We are united together in Trinitarian love by one Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, and by one Lord, meaning the Lord Jesus Christ, and by one God who is the Father of all, who is over all and in all. And the aim of the gospel is not merely to unite the church, to unite the world. Sometimes I think we can think that like Christian unity is just really, it's just for the church. Like God has given us unity with each other just for the sake of those that were already here. But the reality is that God has sent Christ to bring unity to humanity. And as we unify with each other around the banner of Jesus, this is the church. So the church's aim is to bring unity back into humanity. The great glory of Christianity is that it is the healing, it is the healing of the old divisions of the world. So way back in Genesis chapter 11, if you can think back, if you've read the Bible or the opening chapters of the Bible, we read that humanity was fractured by sin, was broken apart at the Tower of Babel. You remember the Tower of Babel? Maybe you remember that story from Sunday school or you've read it recently, but coming out of the days of Noah's flood, after God had cleansed the world through the flood, the world is reborn in the days after the flood, and the world at that point is all still one people, one common language. The world sang one song to one tune, but it wasn't a pretty song. And it wasn't a kind tune. It was a song of arrogance and pride and self-indulgence. And so God breaks up the world's unity by introducing all the various languages. And the world then becomes fractured. And the peoples of the earth become wary of each other. And they divide up into separate nations and they build walls of protection from each other and then they go to war. And that has been the story of humanity ever since the Tower of Babel. Self-protecting in our own little enclaves, 
at war and conflict and suspicion with the rest of the world. But then with the coming of Jesus and the inbreaking of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit comes down again into the world, and all the languages of the world are brought together in worship and praise of God. It's a reversal of Babel. The languages are coming together again. The peoples of the world are being reunited once again. But this time, we are being reunited in love for God and for each other. This is a major point that Paul makes in the second half of Ephesians 2, just a few uh, passages or a few uh, chapters earlier here in Ephesians. Paul's making the point that Jesus' coming has not just brought peace between us and God, but that Jesus' coming and his shed blood has actually brought peace between us, other human beings, and, and each other. We who were far off and at enmity with each other, Paul writes, have been brought near to each other by the blood of Jesus. So the blood of Jesus not only makes peace possible between us and God, but the blood of Jesus makes peace possible between humans and humans. The peoples of the world who have been fractured by sin are becoming one again in Christ, which is to say that the goal of the gospel is unity, human unity. So the first point of context is that the gospel is not just about me and my salvation. It is about me and my salvation, but it's not just about me and my salvation. The point of the gospel is unity among fellow human beings under the banner of Jesus. So the second point then of context is that this newly reunited peoples, this reunited humanity, are given unique graces or gifts by which we are to bless one another. So verses 7 through 14 here of chapter 4, we see these unique graces or gifts or 4 through uh, 14, rather, 7 through 14. All right, so we might take all of this talk about unity and oneness to mean that the gospel is turning us all into clones of each other. Like We're all becoming one in Christ. But the glory of the redemption is not that we all become clones of Jesus and thus clones of each other, so that we're like a bunch of Jesus stormtroopers, except we have white robes and harps instead of white body armor and laser blasters, right? Jesus doesn't actually make us all the same. And he doesn't treat us all the same. Look at verse 7. Paul's talking all about this unity in verses 4, 5, and 6. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And he says in verse 7, but... But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given to each one of us individually according to the measure of Christ's allotment. We can often think of the term grace as referring to God's divine disposition, his benevolent attitude, and it does mean that, but it means more than that, because in the New Testament, the term grace most literally and actually means gift. So we read about the spiritual gifts in Romans chapter 12, for instance, or the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That term gift is just the word grace. So the idea of giving a grace to someone is the same as giving a gift to someone. So when Paul says that Jesus gives grace to each one of us, 
He's saying that Jesus gives gifts to each one of us. And then in verse 11, Paul goes on to list some of these graces or these gifts that Jesus hands out to his people. He says that some are given the gift or the grace of apostleship. Some are given the gift or grace of being a prophet or an evangelist or shepherd teachers. I'm not going to go into trying to explain what each of these gifts are. The point to be made here is that Jesus is giving out different gifts to different members of the body. Not everyone is getting the same gift. And these aren't here in verse 11. It's not a comprehensive list of all the graces that Jesus gives to his people. We could go to passages like 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans chapter 12 to see additional gifts or graces that Jesus gives to his people. Gifts like administration or compassion or giving or teaching or mercy, hospitality, encouragement, and so forth. Basically, any good thing that you have, any gift or ability, any resource that you have that you can give to other people to be a blessing to other people, that's a gift or a grace from Jesus. And the important point that I want to make here is that we don't all get the same grace from Jesus. We don't all even get the same amount of the same graces from Jesus. Listen to what Paul says about spiritual graces or gifts in Romans 12, verses 3 through 7. He says, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself in sober judgment, in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each one of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. And so forth, he goes on to list all the rest of the gift. So then each one of us in Jesus are uniquely graced to serve each other. Uniquely graced to serve each other. We're not all given the same gifts in the same amount. Which means that when you were a little child and your mom told you that you were just a precious, unique little snowflake in Jesus, that was right and true, actually. Right? That we all are uniquely made by the grace of Jesus to be a blessing to others. And then in verse 14, Paul talks about what this blessing is. It's that we in all of these diverse graces coming together, enable the church to grow up into the maturity of the Son of God, so that we are no longer tossed to and fro by all the various winds and waves of deceitful teaching or cunning or schemes. So the first point of context is that the goal of the gospel is unity. The second point of context is that the gifts of the gospel or the graces of the gospel are diverse they're varied. All right, so now with these two ideas as the backdrop, let's look for our four points of application from verses 15 and 16. All right, Paul tells us in verse 15 that speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head of the body. This idea of Jesus as the head of the body, and the body is a reference to the church, Jesus is the head of the church, is one of the chief metaphors that Paul uses for describing Jesus' organic relationship with his people. 
Jesus is connected to his people like a head to the body. Jesus, as the head of the body, is the source of the body's life, and the body receives the life of, and as the body receives the life of the head, the body grows and flourishes. It's the same sort of idea that we would read in John's writing, where Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. Apart from him, we can't bear fruit. It's that same sort of idea. But for the longest time, I always thought of the head-body dynamic as showing only the dependency of the body upon the head. And then when I've brought that perspective to this passage, I would struggle a bit to follow Paul's logic in verse 16. Look back here in verse 16. It's a bit of an awkward sentence, and it can take a bit of rereading and reading to get what Paul is saying. But look at verse 16. He's, maybe we can start in verse 15. He says, Rather speaking the truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There at the end of verse 16, that last clause, Paul is saying that something makes the body grow. Something makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What is the something that is making the body grow? I kept having a hard time following Paul's logic because I was expecting him to say something like, Christ, the head, makes the body grow, which indeed is true, and it's what he says actually in Colossians 2.19. You don't need to turn there, but this the sister passage to this text, and listen to what he says in 2.19. Paul says, 2.19 of Colossians, that we should hold fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. So then when I would read Ephesians 4.16, all this talk about head and joints and ligaments and being held together and working, I kept trying to to get it to say the same thing. But Paul is actually making a different point in Ephesians. It's not a contradictory point, but it's a different point. Look again at verse 16. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If we pull this down to the most basic grammar, we read in verse 16, from whom the whole body makes the body grow. The something that makes the body grow is the whole body. Christ grows his body through the whole body. The growth of the body ultimately is from God. That's what Paul notes in Colossians 2.19. But, but Jesus grows his body through the body. He has equipped each part of the body with graces and gifts so that the body is capable of building itself up in love. So often we can fall into the trap of thinking that Jesus just grows us up into Christian maturity directly and immediately by himself. Me and my quiet times over by myself in my living room or with my cup of coffee or listening to my own personal praise music. It's just me growing up in Christ. All happens just immediately with Christ independent of the body. 
And then church is the place where everyone who has been grown up individually in our relationships with Jesus then gathers together to collectively live out our individually accrued maturity. But that's not at all what Paul is saying here. Indeed, that sort of mindset actually makes the body superfluous, unnecessary. Paul is actually saying that you and I can't become mature Christians apart from the graces working through the body of Christ. Because it's the whole body that causes the body to grow. Or again, you say it this way, we're not just dependent on the head, we're dependent on the body. Because the body and the head are one. St. Augustine, and you all know I like me some St. Augustine, he talks about the whole Christ. Well, for my Latin friends, he talks about the totus Christus. And by the whole Christ, what he means is Christ together with his body. Christ the head without his body is not the whole Christ. Just like my head without my body is not the whole Gerald. Augustine's reading of Acts chapter 9, you might, maybe you remember Acts chapter 9, but Paul, before he converts to Christianity, he is called Saul, and he's on his way to persecute Christians. And while he's on his way to persecute Christians, Jesus confronts him and meets him, and he challenges Saul. And Augustine writes this about that moment. He says, the whole is Christ. And because the whole is Christ, therefore the head shouted down from heaven, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It'd be like if a little child after the service came up and started kicking me in the shins. And I looked down benevolently, of course, and with kindness and compassion. And I said, child, child, why are you kicking me? Because when Saul was persecuting the body of Christ, he was persecuting Christ, for Christ and the body are one. But for Augustine, we can't separate Christ from his body. That's basically the point that Paul is making here. The whole Christ is both head and body, and you can't separate them, and you need both of them because the grace of the head flows to us as individual members of the body through the whole body. Each member of the body has been given, to quote Liam Neeson, a very particular set of skills that are essential for the growth of the whole body. And it's the whole body working together in love that makes the body grow. All right, so here are our four points then of application. First point of application is come to church. You all I've done that. You're doing great. You can check out for the next five minutes on this point of application. Come to church. We can't benefit from the graces of the body if we remain in isolation from the body. To be in isolation from the body of Christ is to be in isolation from the graces that the head has given to the body by which we as members of the body are sanctified and moved to maturity. And we need the real presence of each other if we are going to benefit from the graces that Jesus has given 
to each of us. So a question for you this morning, does your church engagement reflect your dependence upon the body of Christ? Watching the services on TV can get you access to the sermon, but it can't get you access to the body. One thing to rely upon the live stream because you must by necessity of your season in life. We have shut-ins who are no longer physically able to come to church, and so they participate as best as they're able through the live stream, and we follow up with them as much as we can in other ways. But it's another thing to rely upon the live stream because it's more convenient. Consumption of the live stream isn't the same thing as consumption of the body. But listen, if you've you quit coming to church, you lose your connection to the body of Christ, there's a very real danger that you will over time lose your connection to the head because the head and the body are one. The grace that Jesus gives us to persevere in the faith is the grace that flows through the body. So to cut ourselves off from the graces of the body is to cut ourselves off from significant graces that Jesus wants to give us that allow us to endure and to carry on steadfastly in our faith. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. And our faith was not made to survive independent of the graces of the body. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 10.25, he warns against those who are giving up meeting together. He gives that warning in the context of his warnings against apostasy. Because for the author of Hebrews, he sees that to give up meeting together with the body of Christ runs the risk of isolating yourself from the body's head. So don't cut yourself off from the graces that Jesus is offering you through his body, the graces by which your faith is able to survive and thrive. The first application is come to church. Second application is when you come to church, use your gifts in service of the body. You and I do not have all of the gifts necessary to grow ourselves into Christian maturity. Just let that sink in for a moment. Jesus has not given you, nor has he given me, all of the gifts and the graces necessary for us to achieve Christian maturity individually by ourselves. Jesus does not grow us into maturity independent of his body. That's why it's important, essential, that we are in relationship with each other. I need the gifts that Jesus has given to you that I don't have. And you need the gifts that Jesus has given to me that you don't have. And we all need each other's gifts. Like we're going on a long trip across the desert. And each of us are carrying items that are vital for the whole group's survival. You're carrying the water. I'm carrying the map. She's carrying the food. He's carrying the tents. And it's all doled out amongst us. And together as a group, we possess what we need to make the journey. But individually, we don't actually have all that we need to make the journey. 
Because Jesus hasn't given each of us everything. And in his wisdom, he has made us dependent upon each other. I have a teaching gift, or so people tell me, right? And Ray Paul, who leads our young adult ministry, she has a teaching gift. And Don Childs, who regularly teaches in our ABFs, he has a teaching gift. And there are many others in our congregation who have teaching gifts. But the teaching gift isn't the only gift in the church, and it isn't enough to get us across the desert. We need the gifts of the whole body. We need folks who have the gift of administration, like Kim Johns or Victor Van Santen. We need folks who have the gift of shepherding, like Ivan Soto and Meg Flynn. Folks who have the gift of leadership, like Christy Spader and Chris Johns. Folks who have the gift of music, like Pastor Greg and Myra Soto, and folks who have the gift of mercy like Kimya Bryant and Peggy Bernthal, folks who have the gift of encouragement like Jen Lingle and Craig Moore, folks who have the gift of helps like Tim Clark and Ralph O'Donnell, and I could go on and on listing the names of all the gifts that people have in our congregation, and you could do probably even better than I do because you've experienced the giftings of folks in our congregation. And there are so many of you that are contributing out of the needs, contributing to the needs of the body out of, of your unique gifting. And we need each other because it takes the whole body to make the body grow up into a place of maturity. One of the things that we've given attention to over the past year is our deacons. And we've given thought to and revamping and, and uh, reorganizing our, our deacons so that our deacons are better positioned within the body to help administer and to deploy the giftings of the congregation on behalf of the congregation. So that as there are needs that are brought to the surface, we're able to connect the gifts that people have, the graces that people have, with the needs that people have. And the deacons are sort of the liaison between those two things. Right, so the deacons are actually, make a plug for them, they're actually out at a table out here in the portico uh, after the service here. And maybe you have graces that you want to share with the congregation. And you're to go to the deacons and say, hey, I've got these things I'm willing to, like, if you know anyone that needs these things, I've got these things, I've got these gifts. Right? But maybe you have needs, right? Go to the, talk to the congregation, talk to the deacons and say, I've got these needs and they can help connect you. But that we really want to care for each other. And the whole point of the diaconate is a recognition of what is being taught here by Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. That the body grows as each part does its work. Right? And that's the point of our diaconate. I need your graces to fill up my empty spaces and you need my graces to smooth off your rough edges. So when you stay away from church, it doesn't just impoverish you, it's also impoverishing me because I need the graces that Jesus has given to you that he hasn't given to me. I need what you have. So come to church and be blessed and be a blessing. And my third point of application is to become a member Perhaps the best and most objective way for you to acknowledge your dependency upon the body of Christ is to formally become a member of a local congregation. It doesn't have to be Calvary. It just has to be whatever church you are attending that you call home. Membership is a way of saying, I belong here. This church is the local expression 
of the body of Christ that I depend upon for my spiritual growth. And this church is the local expression of the body of Christ that depends upon me. This group of people is the group of people that I am journeying across the desert with for this season of my life. Some of you have been checking out Calvary for a while, and that's fair enough. It's like we're halfway across the desert at some common watering hole, and you're trying to decide which group of travelers you're going to band with for the next leg of the journey. And so you're kind of wandering around the different tents, like peeking in and finding out, like, is this going to be a good group of people to travel with across the next stretch of the journey? And that's all fair enough. But if you've checked out Calvary long enough, if you've been peeking into our tents for a while, right, and you know what we're about, then make a decision. If you've seen all that you need to see, then let me encourage you to formalize your commitment to Calvary by becoming a member. And if you're choosing not to become a member, then ask yourself why that is. Well, maybe it's no particular reason. You've just been busy and you do intend to become a member. You just haven't gotten around to it. And if that's you, that's okay. No worries there. That problem is easily solved, right? Just jump into the next membership class and we can get that all sorted out. But if you're not becoming a member as you reflect on it, you begin to think it's actually because I do want to keep some distance between me and the body of Christ. I want to keep some distance between me and the church. You have faith in the head, but you're suspicious of his body. You want to keep the body at a bit of an arm's length. You'll travel across the desert with us, but you want to stay to the fringes, to the edges. You want to keep your options open. And if that's your motivation, then let me strongly encourage you to find a church that you can lean into and receive all the graces that Christ wants to give you through his body. And if it's not Calvary, that's fine. Truly, it is fine. I have no personal agenda or visions of grandeur about someday pastoring a megachurch. That's not my goal in life. I just want you to find a place, find a place where you can become all that Jesus wants you to be and where you can give yourself and all of your God-given graces to the body of Christ as a blessing to the body. Very practically, one of our great pastoral burdens as a ministry staff, author of Hebrews talks about this in Hebrews 13, he says, job of the, the minister is to watch over the souls of the congregation as those who must give an account. And it makes our job of watching over your souls considerably more challenging when you stop short of becoming a member. You're in the traveling party, but you never actually signed up. Each Tuesday at our staff meeting, we set aside a time in our staff meeting to pray for you all, the needs that you've made aware to us or that we know of, and also do our best to make sure that no one is falling through the cracks or is being left behind. Has anyone seen so-and-so lately? Oh, I think she's homesick with COVID for the past month. Oh, then let's send a care package and check in and make sure that she's doing all right. 
Has anyone seen so-and-so lately? Well, he's out of country visiting his parents. So let's check in with his family and see if they need anything. Has anyone seen so-and-so lately? No one? No one's seen so-and-so? Well, then let's call and make sure that everything's still going okay. I'll tell you, it's very hard with the size of our congregation. Now, we're not a huge congregation, but it's hard with the size of our congregation to just shoot from the hip and hope that we're keeping track of everyone. The only real objective list that we have to work from is our membership role. And we do our best to care for our regular attenders who are not our members, but that list is constantly changing and rolling over, and it gets mixed up with guests and other people who are visiting from out of town. So very practically, if you want to be sure that you are being taken care of and are squarely within the, the bullseye of our pastoral care, it's super helpful for us to care for you if you become an actual member. Even if you're only going to be in the area for a couple years, maybe you're here as a student or whatever, it's going to be just for a season, go ahead and become a member. Put yourself formally on the list so that we can more easily take care of you. Put your name into our membership roles and we'll do our very best to make sure that the graces of the whole body are being made available to you. Then finally, my fourth point of application is to participate regularly in communion. Communion, as we head now to the table, the moment, communion is the great sign of our union with Christ. And it is at the same time the great sign of our union with each other. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. He's talking about the connection that we have in communion between Christ and each other. He says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. When we gather together on the Lord's day, and we partake of the elements together in obedience to the Lord's command, we are demonstrating our interdependence and our interconnectedness with each other. Later in 1 Corinthians 11, just a chapter later, Paul will rebuke the Corinthians about a deficiency in their communion observances. Paul tells them that they are failing to discern the body and that such a failure was contrary to the very thing that communion stood for. Because when they would gather together as one body, the rich in the congregation were treating the poor in the congregation without dignity, and they weren't honoring the poor. And so when Paul says that there was a failure to discern the body in their communion practices, he wasn't referring to the, the bread of communion. He was referring to the people of the congregation. A failure to discern the body of Christ in the pews is a failure to discern the body of Christ on the table. But the reverse is also wonderfully true because to acknowledge your need of the body of Christ on the table is at the same time to acknowledge your need for the body of Christ that is seated all around you. So 
But don't neglect this great and most holy of signs. Participate regularly in the grace of communion, and you will find yourself by necessity participating regularly in the grace of the congregation. So is fellowship essential? It is essential because it is the means of growing up into the fullness and the measure of the stature of Christ. Christ has made his graces available to us as members of the body through the body. And as we lean into our participation in the body, we experience all the graces and the bounty of Christ. Pray with me, and then we're going to take communion together. Father, thank you that in giving Jesus to us, you have given us to us. That you have given us back harmony amongst each other in Christ. That you have caused us to know and to walk together in new ways that are ways of love and peace and unity that is all out of the Spirit, Lord. And we want to we want to live into that goodness, Lord. We want to live into the fullness of the graces that you intend for us in Jesus. So God, we thank you for this moment of communion. We thank you that you have given us this great sign that is a reminder of not only our participation and our union with you, but is a participation of our union in each other. Lord, help us to draw upon the strength that you give to us through each other. We pray this Amen.